Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're joined by Dr. Catherine Bowers, who is going to be helping us kick off our seven-part series on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Dr. Catherine Bowers is an expert in Russian literature and culture. Her research interests include genre, narrative, and imagined geography. Her first monograph, Writing Fear, Russian Realism in the Gothic, forthcoming 2022, examines the way Russian realist writers use narrative models from European Gothic fiction in their work. Dr. Bowers has co-edited two Dostoevsky volumes, A Dostoevsky Companion, Text and Context in 2018, with Connor Doak and Kate Holland, and Dostoevsky at 200, The Novel in Modernity, 2021, with Holland. And I should add to that that um, our Dostoevsky at 200 volume is available open access Uh, thanks to the University of Toronto Library. So you can freely download a PDF if you go to the University of Toronto Press website. I will link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Yes. Currently, she's working with Kate Holland on Digital Dostoevsky, a digital humanities project that uses Dostoevsky's corpus in computational text analysis to address formalist questions. Dr. Bowers also edits the bloggers Karamazov and serves as the vice president of the North American Dostoevsky Society. Dr. Bowers, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It is my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. I am looking forward to this episode very much and this whole series. Well, I mean, obviously, Dostoevsky is awesome. <laughs> we, we couldn't wait to get around to our favorite axe murderer. Right. A sentence I don't get a phrase that often. Mm-hmm. I say, say that often. Uh, but before we get into the reading today, uh, Katya, Matt... What are you drinking? Um, so I, I'm going to do my ice cubes here so you can hear. Uh, they've mostly melted. Yes. Um, anyway, <laughs> insert sound of ice cubes here. I am drinking a single malt scotch. Ooh, very, very nice. nice. Yes, it is 14 year open. It is delightful. That sounds, I'm, I'm quite jealous. I wish I had some good Irish whiskey on hand. Yes, I'm drinking something similarly dignified, which is um, the sparkling water from my fridge and a little bit of vodka that I had started drinking prior to the episode. But hey. <laughs> All's fair in Tipsy Tolstoy podcast land. Karen, what do you, you drink today? <laughs> and uh, finally, over over Christmas, my sister very nicely gifted me uh, some beers from a brewery that she uh, has her work works with a little bit, and I forgot to bring them to my new apartment. So <laughs> I'm drinking a, a Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA. Um, Mm-hmm. Just a you know imperial imperial age Russia imperial IPA. I thought of that when I was buying this several weeks ago. So, uh, <laughs> well, excellent. Yeah, thank you. We got we got we got all the 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 perfect things here. And and Matt has is staying on brand with the vodka, which will help lead us into our discussion about dreams later on. I uh, do want to clarify. I don't like having the worst drink on the podcast, but it <laughs> has become a character trait. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'd be kind of rudderless if suddenly you like showed up and you were like drinking beluga vodka. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> the show would probably have to be canceled. <laughs> but I still feel like it's the closest thing to what Marmalade would have been drinking. Yeah. So you're in good company for this one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Matt, maybe not the most dignified drink, but the most on-brand drink for, uh, yeah. for Crime and Punishment. For sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, uh, before we get into the, the summary for today, as per usual, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Crime and Punishment itself, but I'm sure you've all heard about Dostoevsky a million times before, so we wanted to talk about um, something that's a little bit more interesting, and um, Katya shared with us a really interesting article, uh, The Rise of Crime and Punishment from the Air of the Media, uh, by Konstantin Kluchkine, or Kluchkin? 
Kluchkin. Kluchkin. Thank you so much. Uh, which is really an in, really an interesting perspective and and really an important one on the work. And I was wondering if you could just summarize that a little bit and talk about it before we got into the story proper. Um, sure. So one of the things that so this is an article um, from 2002. So it's an oldie but a goodie. Um, and I recommended it because I like to read it with my students when we start talking about crime and punishment. And what this article does is it gives a really good introduction to what was happening in terms of the mediascape that surrounds Raskolnikov and the setting of crime and punishment. Um, this time in the 1860s in Russia, there was a lot of new media, well, new in the 1860s, now older media, new media um, happening. So you had, for example, local news, you had feuilletons, you had courtroom reports, you had um, newspapers, you had journals, you had thick journals, you had all kinds of things. And sorry, my light just went kind of. That's okay. <laughs> it's My light is on the struggle bus. I'll just sit here in the dark. It'll be also very thematic. Um, so you have a lot of different media options um, and a lot of media swirling around St. Petersburg. Um, Dostoevsky was really fascinated by media, by the way that the media inf could influence the public, and by the way that media was that the media could shape public opinion. Especially because Dostoevsky himself was a journalist, right? He had been working as a journalist. He had been publishing in um, different media outlets, by which I mean kind of journals, um, some subscription newsletter kind of things, different different uh, facets of this, some newspapers. Um, leading up to his writing of Crime and Punishment. And so Raskolnikov is a character that he seems like he's a character who has made up his mind. But actually, if you look at the way that he is introduced throughout the novel, according to Kluchkin, he is very much a person who is imbibing this media, right? He's a person who is listening to different rumors that he hears, who's thinking about newspaper articles that he's read, who's thinking about journal articles that he's read. And as Kluchkin argues, this environment, this media environment, not only shapes the plot, but propels the plot forward. This is what convinces Raskolnikov to kill the old woman. This is what convinces Raskolnikov to take that step. It's a really good article. Everyone should read it. Yes, highly encouraged. I will, I will also link that in the show notes. Really fascinating reading. It doesn't it doesn't take super long too, and also uh, as previously discussed, brings in a, a really interesting perspective that I, I don't I don't mm -hmm. think I've heard previously. So thank you. Well, I think it's important with crime and punishment, especially, but also with all of Dostoevsky's novels, to think about them as products of their time. Like these are not novels that are written in a void, and some people do read them as great philosophical texts that do exist in a void and tell us these great truths. But those great truths come out of this historical context and out of this social um, change and all of these things that were happening in Russia at the time that kind of like is forced through the media. So important to start out that way, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, a, you know, a perspective we always encourage people to take into it in these works. This happens often recovering Tolstoy's people look at it as like this great and touchable piece of literature. But I mean, these are great pieces of literature, make no mistake, but they are products mm -hmm. of their people and their times. And that should be factored in too. Well, and also they were written to reflect the time that they were written in. Mm -hmm. Like they, they do speak to these universal themes. But they were very much, like, Crime and Punishment is very much set in 1865. And the newspaper articles that are happening in it are newspaper articles that Dostoevsky was reading. So he's he's making a very good point of putting this exactly in its time. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, well, I'm sure we'll come back to this a little bit more later. But uh, just for those mm -hmm. of you who maybe haven't read Crime and Punishment before, let's do a quick little summary of what happens in part one of seven of Crime and Punishment. 
I appreciate that I already spoiled it for everybody. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I know. Always happens. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to stop after this episode. <laughs> Nothing else happens, surely. <laughs> I like to go with the general rule that it's over five years old. It's okay to spoil. And what is this at like, you know, 140 something? I think it's okay. <laughs> yeah. You'd think that, but when when you mention to students what they might or might not know about Anna Karenina and you jokingly say something about a train on the first day of class, you would be surprised how many of them get upset. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Sorry to any students who haven't read Anna Karenina yet. I was nonspecific in that comment. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Sorry. We will spoil a few other classic russian text in the in the show notes as well if you want to check those yeah as long as we've started let's uh if you want to hear the ending of hero of our time uh i'll just <laughs> uh so we <laughs> we join our our protagonist i was gonna say hero maybe that's not the right word uh, rodion romanov raskolnikov as he walks the streets of saint petersburg he's feeling sick he's feeling thoughtful and he's altogether too aware of himself He's on his way to visit a pawnbroker, Aliona Ivanovna, uh, to obtain a little bit of money for a watch. And the whole time, he's, he's paying attention to things around him. He's asking a lot of questions. And uh, Aliona Ivanovna is, is naturally a very suspicious woman. So she's rebuffing some of his questions of, oh, when he asks kind of casually, hey, is your sister, half-sister Elizaveta, how often is she around? She's kind of telling him, why do you need to know? He ends up pawning his watch for a comically small amount of money he already pawned an item uh, last month and she because he had not paid that off yet has taken some money out of out of out of this pawn pawning uh, in order to pay for that as well so he walks out with just a little bit over a ruble not a lot of money and uh, after leaving the apartment he kind of has this epiphany feeling weak and, and thinks to himself no i can't possibly do this this unspecified thing and stops in a, a nearby tavern to to get a cold beer in order to write himself and when he's had this cold beer and some bread uh, he is joined by this, what initially seems to be an official-looking person, who introduces himself as Marmaladov, and as as Raskolnikov is, is uh, drinking, or not drinking, sitting with Marmaladov, it becomes increasingly apparent that Marmaladov is quite unwashed, quite, uh, looks like he's been sleeping outside. Uh, in fact, he has been, he's been sleeping on a hay barge for the last five days, without really much prompting, and into the the jeers and jesting of much of the rest of the bar who is quite familiar with Marmaladov, it appears. Marmaladov explains his life story to Raskolnikov, uh, telling him that he was previously a government official, and uh, when he proposed to his current wife after his first wife died and after his current wife's first husband died, in the year after, because he really loved his wife after their marriage, uh, he stayed away from drink which might be a little bit hard to believe given how he looks in this tavern right now. But he explains, you know, through no fault of his own, he lost his job. And then he and the family moved to St. Petersburg to find work for him. But after he lost his first job, he did take to the drink. And now his his penchant for it after the, losing the first job loses him his second job, meaning that the family really has no income other than what uh, his wife, Katerina Ivanovna, can uh, obtain through through washing floors and such work. And they, they really are not able to feed any of their kids. Katerina Ivanovna has three children. Uh, Marmaladov has one, uh, one daughter, all from their first marriages. And uh, Katerina Ivanovna convinces uh, Marmaladov's daughter, uh, Sonia, or Sonichka, to go into prostitution to take up the yellow card, which she does, and begins earning the family quite a bit of money. Although, because of the stigma, she has to uh, move away and live on her own. Uh, well, rent from another family. In, in response to this, Marmaladov goes off and begs for a job, which he gets. But after getting his first paycheck, he immediately steals it and goes out on a bender, which is 
where we now find him. And he declares to Raskolnikov that he comes here looking for tears and tribulation um, and, and waxes poetic about the, the end days. Raskolnikov helps Marmolotov home. Marmolotov's wife is not pleased to see him, and she immediately begins beating him. And uh, Raskolnikov leaves some money on the, still, on, on the windowsill and decides, maybe I should go. This seems like a family affair. The next morning, uh, Raskolnikov wakes up feeling quite ill and has this little little rooftop uh, room. It's, it's really quite small, and he finds the, the landlady's servant in there, Nastasia, who, who cooks food for all the, all the tenants of this house. And uh, Nastasia mentions to Raskolnikov, hey, you know, you're not paying rent. The landlady wants to go to the cops to evict you, essentially. Raskolnikov really does not care. But when Nastasia mentions that she has a letter from his mother, he does suddenly, his ears perk up. He's, he's suddenly interested. And she, she gives it to him after he pays her the money that she paid to get the letter. And in the letter, Raskolnikov's mother, Pulcheria, uh, relates to him some stories of primarily about Raskolnikov's sister, Danya, who previously was a governess with the Svidrigailov family uh, until the, the head of the household um, tried to force her into a sexual relationship. Uh, Svidrigailov's wife, Marfa Petrovna, misunderstands, drags Danya's name through the mud, sends her home, until finally Svidrigailov, out of uh, apparently a sense of guilt, according to Pulcheria, confesses, and Danya is, is basically rehabilitated by Marfa. Following that, she Danya receives a marriage proposal from uh, a guy, Peter... Luzhin. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. No worries. Uh, who uh, is, it says, like, he, he's older, he's a successful businessman, and he, he seems to be quite attractive to Pulcheria, at least, and uh, says he's, he, he's, got, he's got a law firm, he does business, and Pulcheria is writing to Raskolnikov, hey... Look, I you know I know you're a law student. This might be the the perfect position for you to start making your way in the world. If Lujan will, will employ you, he's coming to St. Petersburg, and I want you to talk to him. Uh, Dunya and I will also be coming, but following, we need to find our own way. Lujan offered to pay for our luggage, but we've got to find our own passage. But don't worry about it. We'll find a way there. We're looking forward to see you. Here's some here's some money. After reading this, Raskolnikov is completely beside himself because he's read behind between the lines, and he really gets that. Without meaning illusion, the way that Dunya has reacted tells him that this illusion probably is not exactly what she's looking for in a marriage. Yeah, illusion yeah. is the worst. <laughs> he is a slimy toad. You can't trust someone who is like, as someone who almost <laughs> went to law school, you can't trust someone who does loss, who does law and business things. <laughs> There's no way that can work out. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> illusion discourse aside, although pay attention to the illusion discourse because that will be that will be important. Don't put don't entirely put that aside. Um, Raskolnikov is thinking Dunya must be doing this, and some of the things that Pulcheria that mentions about illusion's behavior, uh, Raskolnikov that, that the Pulcheria puts beside Raskolnikov is like this is telling me that he's a really kind of a, a, a bore without knowing much more about him, and Dunya is clearly just doing this because she thinks that that's going to put her family in a, in a financially better position, that, that Raskolnikov is going to be taken care of, that Pulcheria is going to be taken care of. Not a bore in the sense of a boring person, a bore in the sense of a terrible person. Yes, yeah. Just reiterating that. Just, we, we really can't hammer that point home enough. No. <laughs> and speaking of terrible people, that leads us into this little uh, di- diversion from, from Raskolnikov's thoughts as he comes across... Uh, he initially sees someone in front of him, a woman who's like very dressed up, but he can't notice like something odd. It looks like there's um, her dress isn't quite right. And he begins to realize that as he walk, is walking by, like, actually, this is quite uh, it's not a woman. It's it's quite a young girl dressed up in, in these fineries. And in fact, she looks rather intoxicated and like very out of sorts. And, and in fact, like she almost had been forced into those clothes. 
And as he's considering that, he begins to realize that there's someone following the two of them. The girl is incoherent. He brings her over to a bench and kind of waits there until uh, a member of the militia or police comes by and he kind of explains and points to the to the like the pervert off in the corner who's been following them that this this young girl has has is clearly quite drunk was probably taken what that what the book calls taken advantage of without explicitly saying what it is but fairly clear um and the pervert just stands there with like the cops i mean one singular cop just hanging out which is i don't know to make it that different i uh yeah. Uh, and anyway, so the the cop takes the tries to take the girl off to presumably find her way home. And then suddenly Raskolnikov has this change of heart and he yells after them like, oh, who cares? Leave the girl to this pervert over here. Um, and the cop looks at him kind of funny and like keeps going. And uh, Raskolnikov, like he's of, of many minds on this and decides to go see his friend uh, Razmukhin before. Um, and Razmukhin, by the way, is just like this. Element. Razumikhin. Oh, Razum. Thank you so much. Yeah, his name is important because Razum, reason, is built into his name. It, it is important because he's also, he's like this very, as described by the book, this very elemental character um, who is like, I, I, I hesitate to, to compare him to, who's the guy from, our favorite boy from, what is to be done? Rachmiatov. Yes, thank you. He's uh, not Rachmiatov, though. He's like, Rachmiatov, I would argue, is not a very sensible character. I mean, he spends a lot of time sleeping on a bed of nails. Like, not a sensible person. <laughs> Whereas Razumikhin is arguably the most sensible person in this book. That's, well, that's very true. He's, he's presented super positively, like almost a Superman of sort of like this elemental character who can drink an incredible amount. But also, he can totally abstain from alcohol. He can play jokes and be funny, but he can also not do that at all. He can, he, he's like, he's everything at once. He always knows how to make money, but always through hard work. He's very strong, but also knows how to use that strength. Like you said, he, he, he kind of knows to, to the point to like to his name Razum, he kind of knows what the middle ground is and what he what he should be oftentimes or almost always speaking about computational text analysis and what we can learn from it um chloe kitzinger who is a mm. professor at rutgers university has done a really interesting network study of crime and punishment so she um using coding to tag all the conversations in crime and punishment who was saying what to who and then she graph put it in a network graph and she found out that Raskolnikov is the central character. He's the person that's having the most conversations, the most connections with everyone, which is in no way surprising. Obviously, Raskolnikov is the central character. But the second central character is Razumikhin. This is the person who has connections with everybody in the book, who is having the most conversations, connections with people. And that's super interesting because Razumikhin kind of blends into the background. Like, I wouldn't have thought that he was that important, although he is important, right? But he doesn't seem like that key of a character, but he is. He's an extremely central character in the book. Interesting. Okay, well, good note for all of our listeners. Pay attention. Pay attention mm -hmm. to that. Yeah, I was going to say, thinking back to my first read, he kind of seeped more into the into the background for me, I guess. But Because he's the most sensible person. The sensible person is not making the drama that everybody else in this book is. Hmm, interesting. Okay, well, this is basically something for... Because... Uh, a lot of times our summaries encapsulate the more exciting parts of the book. For those of you who are reading along, take Katya's advice. Pay attention to that. On the tier list of most dramatic characters. <laughs> yeah, I think if you had a list of most dramatic characters in the book, Razumikin <laughs> would be like dead last. <laughs> dead last. Like maybe after the horse that gets beaten in the dream. We got to talk about the horse after. But we'll get there. We'll, we'll Sorry. Get there in due time. <laughs> Carry on with the summary. Onwards. <laughs> We were actually quite close close to the horse, in fact. Uh, so after deciding that he, he does not want to see Razumikhin, and of course Razumikhin uh, does in fact see Raskolnikov, but being kind of the the guy he is, realizes 
probably doesn't want to see me and just lets him go. Um, and Raskolnikov leaves there and goes to a nearby uh, restaurant to drink, uh, drink some vodka and eat a pie. It says a little bit of vodka, but then it says a wine glass full. So I'm sure glass, wine glasses are much smaller than they are on average in the U.S., but still not an insignificant amount of vodka. Well, a Russian shot of vodka is about two or three times the size of what we would consider in the West to be a shot, right? A Russian shot of vodka. It's like a stakhan. It's like, it's considerable. It would fit in a small wine glass. That's, that, that makes sense. And given what happens next, that, that amount also makes sense for, for someone who, as Raskolnikov mentions, has not drank a lot recently or really especially hard liquors at all in, in recent months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and completely unused to that amount of, of liquor, he falls asleep on a nearby green and begins to dream of, of himself as a boy, along with his father at some kind of festival at, at a village. And as they're walking along, they come across a tavern, which is very festive. And the people in the tavern um, spill outside and get in a cart. And the horse and, and the man who appears to own the, the cart and the horse starts like kind of getting the whip and is, is whipping the horse and says, hey, come on, let's go. And the horse is not going because it's, it's quite old and it clearly does not have the strength to, to pull this many people. And the, the guy is getting angrier and angrier and is telling more and more people to get in. He's beating it harder and harder. And at this point, a crowd's forming. Some of the crowd yelling at the man to stop and, you know, you're really not a Christian if you can engage in this kind of behavior. Some of the crowd also beating the horse. Um, and uh, the young Raskolnikov breaks through this crowd, feeling this in- intense amount of pain for the horse, even taking some some whips on the side uh, and begins to nuzzle the horse before finally the, the man grows angry enough that he pulls first. Uh, uh, and they get some kind of a, a pylon or um, a, a large wooden shaft and beats the horse over the back, failing to kill it. He grabs a an iron crowbar and finally deals of death blow to it. And, and the child Raskolnikov is just crying and holding the horse's head and, and kissing it on its, its uh, kind of nose and, and, and eyes before Raskolnikov's father pulls him away and tells him, like, don't mind them. They're just drunk. And at this very upsetting apex, uh, Raskolnikov wakes up and uh, tells him, oh, it's just a dream. Okay. Even though he's covered in sweat, walks home the long way. And when he's coming home, he hears, happens over here, uh, from uh, he well, actually happens to see Lizaveta Alyona's sister in the haymarket, um, and she's talking to some vendors. And the vendors say, "Hey, come back tomorrow at seven. We got some items for you." Lizaveta is um, is kind of a, a middle woman where she connects sellers and buyers, um, and it's known that she's quite fair in that. Raskolnikov reflects on how he knows uh, Alyona Ivanovna either when he gets home to his his um, I hesitate to call it apartment his room, um, and 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 notes that he he heard of her previously through another friend. And he had pawned some things with her when he really needed some money after he'd first left university and happened to over, overhear an officer and a student talking about whether or not it's moral to kill someone like Aliona Ivanovna, specifically they mentioned, to give her items to the many needy people of St. Petersburg. The officer kind of tells the student, like, well, would you do it yourself? And the student says, no, I wouldn't. This is just a theoretical to talk about justice. And the officer says, well, if you won't do it yourself, then it's not justice. And clearly Raskolnikov takes that as a challenge. Um... We flash back to the to modern times, and finally, um, Raskolnikov decides I, I'm going to do it. And he he takes his big coat, he sews in a handle which he can hide an axe in his his coat in, and, and without holding it to not be too obvious. And he's got a, an elaborate plan to bring a, a pledge or an item to pawn off that's actually just a piece of wood that he's wrapped in paper with some, uh, I think it's some iron or steel to make it feel heavier. And and he goes in in the evening uh, of the next day, knowing that Lizaveta is not going to be there per. Uh, what he heard in the Haymarket, and he 
managed to get entry into Ivan uh, into Aliona Ivanovna's apartment, and as she's kind of trying to get the pledge unwrapped, he pulls out the axe and, and beats her over the head at the dull side, and and deals a second blow, ultimately killing her. And he goes to search her apartment, uh, and while he's looking around, kind of fumbling about, even though so much of his thought going into this has been criminals fail because they don't really think about their plans, and I'm kind of better than that. He's fumbling around, he's dealing with his emotions, although he won't admit it. He hears a sound, and he goes out and he sees Lizaveta, who has returned early, and she's cradling her sister's body. And without much thought, Raskolnikov reach, races over, and using the sharps of the axe, he deals one blow to her head, splitting open and killing her. Uh, what follows is Raskolnikov is almost caught. Uh, someone comes by to because they had made a plan to meet uh, Alyona Ivanovna, but she doesn't answer the door. Raskolnikov's hiding inside, and they a whole thing where forms where he's on like the second or third floor of this apartment building, and of course they're inside in, in such a way that it's like a a, a conical or a staircase that you better get down. And he Raskolnikov only gets away from these two men who've come to pawn some things because they leave to go get a guard, and he's able to hide in another apartment. And when they go in, finally break into Alyona Ivanovna's apartment, he runs out of that apartment and runs down the staircase and outside, and and finally manages to escape. And, and in a trance, he returns back to his room, getting rid of the evidence uh, along the way. And that is part one of Crime and Punishment, ending on as uh, as Katya alluded to earlier, pretty brutal axe murder, too actually. It's gripping. It really is. So. Well, Cameron, thank you for that summary. We're going to take a quick break as we head over to our new segment, uh, aptly named <laughs> The Compromise Corner, where we read you ads of companies that we are partnering with that, that we like. Uh, compromising... They, they haven't approved the name we've given to the ad break section, no. but I, we can only presume that they will love it. No. Um, and if they find out, that means that they listen to the podcast. So in a way... We've already won. <laughs> it's only a slight compromise, though, because we actually do like the following companies we are going to promote. Uh, yeah, they're actually relevant, so that's they, that's actually quite cool. Yeah, you're you're welcome. Uh, without further ado, Cameron, I have to I have to ask. Do you know Do mm-hmm. you know what I hate? I don't know what do you, oh uh, quite a few things, but what, what what are we talking about? What what thing do you hate specifically <laughs> in this context? I really hate when I'm spending a long day in the kitchen cooking, baking, I'm making a pie. And I set it down to have a drink in the oven, and I burn it. And that is the absolute worst. Mm, that is the worst. You know one type of pie that you can't burn, Cameron? That's Lingo Pie. Lingo Pie is the world's only language <laughs> learning application that uses real TV shows and movies to help you learn a new language. The idea is to make language learning as simple as watching your favorite TV show. They use real TV shows and movies from the language you want to learn. Each show comes with subtitles in the original language. Every word, phrase, or slang is clickable, which is actually really cool, uh, to give you instant translation in real time to help you learn. LingoPie is great for all levels, from beginner to advanced, with great content and language learning tools appropriate for everyone. I will say I actually personally had been using LingoPie before we became uh, a partner or affiliates uh, with their program, and so I actually really like it. They they change out their content pretty frequently, and they've got a lot of really good stuff. So especially for people that are interested in learning Russian, that's what I've been uh, going through and using it for, because I can only watch so much of the freaking news. Sometimes I just want to watch anything else. <laughs> uh, so if you're interested in taking a look at LingoPie, you can go to learn.lingopie.com slash tipsytolstoy, or click down in the description. we got a little bit of a link there for you. You, you can go crazy. And in addition to that, we also have some links with Libro.fm. Hopefully, you like reading if you're listening to this podcast. I certainly hope you do. Um, and if you like reading, you may like audiobooks. Now, 
not everyone likes audiobooks. I can totally understand that. I personally, I'm a huge proponent of them. Um, it's a great way to fit in extra reading when you're doing the laundry or doing your grocery shopping. And Libro.fn makes it possible for you to buy audiobooks through your local bookstore, giving you the power to keep your money in your local economy, create jobs, and make a difference in your community. Uh, so that's a chance for you to to buy audiobooks and, and still support the local ecosystem. And so whether you're paying for a monthly membership, giving an audiobook gift to a friend, or buying audiobooks for yourself or your organization, uh, Libro.fm splits the profits from your purchase with your local bookstore. Uh, they've got many of the books we've already read available on their site, including, importantly, if you so want to listen along, Crime and Punishment. And you can check the show notes for more information on that. Now we can go on to uh, Uncompromised Analysis. Obviously, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of uh, themes we could be working through. What For the two of you, when you finish this part, when it like immediately just stands out to you or the thoughts that are popping into your heads? So the first question that my students always ask, and the first question that I probably asked as a student, although honestly, this was in the misty past and I don't remember it anymore, is why is the murder at the beginning of the novel? Right? What? Because that seems, I mean, if it's crime fiction, you don't expect the crime to be like with who's doing it and how it worked out to be revealed that early in the novel. Um, and so that, that I think is really interesting and really unique to Russian crime fiction. This idea of, um, as uh, several people who've written on crime fiction in the novel have said, Louise McReynolds and um, Claire Whitehead and others, uh, this is a how done it, not a, or a, this is a why done it, not a who done it. Right or like a how done it, not a who done it. Yeah, that was obviously my my first thing that kind of stuck out to me. That is the most obvious thing I feel like, though. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean when I when I talk to other people that are uh, like haven't read it, they the expectation is mm. that the murder is going to happen at the end. Yeah, that the murder happens <laughs> yeah. at the beginning, and the murder is mm-hmm. extremely graphic, like substantially more graphic than many other murders and suicides that take place in Dostoevsky novels. Yeah, my. My other thing that I was more apparent, I guess, on reading this time through was all the the horse imagery. Maybe that could be from reading more Tolstoy frequently, (laughs) um, as happens. But the trend in commonalities between women, animals, and then doing violence onto them seems to kind of uh, carry over. It seemed to me that the description of Lizaveta's murder was a parallel of the horse beating. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was kind of when I was reading this, I was like, oh, I didn't get that my first time. Um, the way that she doesn't even raise her hand to protect her face as she's about to get axed. Yeah, I think obviously. Um, and I didn't mean that in an, oh, that's so obvious way. No, I meant that in a, that's a really good connection way. Um, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) I, I think that, uh, connecting Lizavieta with the horse, that horse dream where the horse is this innocent victim, right? And Lizavieta also an innocent victim. That is really powerful because that's something, even though Raskolnikov says he's immured to the violence, he's thought of this crime, he's trying to be so cold-hearted about it. But the fact that those two things are described in the same way, that I think is quite striking. And that's where his niggling of conscience begins to, begins to come into the novel. Yeah, I thought that the in, in the dream sequence, I don't know, maybe it was just me putting it onto it, but I assumed Raskolnikov was supposed to be the you know child watching this yeah. right horse being beat, and so to see it in the same chapter flipped on its head to where he is the one actually perpetrating the violence, I thought I was like, wow, oh, fascinating. 
Absolutely. But if you think about, so going back to Kluchkin's article, one of the things that is happening in this novel is that um, Raskolnikov meets a lot of really terrible people. And he gets, he, he listens to people discussing newspaper articles about crime, about violence in pubs, in the streets. And then he has this, and he has all these encounters where, you know, he has this encounter with a drunk girl and he lets her go. He lets the policeman go. He lets the whole thing go because he realizes that he can't protect her. The policeman is most likely just going to hand her over to this guy that's following them, right? Because Raskolnikov is already seeing the world as a, a world that's corrupted. Nothing is good. And so if you think about that in terms of um, this horse beating, right? He's associating Alyona Ivanovna not with the horse, but with the peasant that's beating the horse, right? Um, and so she in his mind, she deserves it. But Elizaveta is another story. Yeah, that's a good point. I um I also of course saw some some Chernyshevsky echoes. Absolutely. Um as one I mean I don't know if well, I guess it's fair to point out, but it's kind of the dominant question of the eighteen sixties and before and also after and continues today. Um but uh in his in his head, Raskolnikov thinks the question whether the disease gives rise to the crime or whether the crime, due to its own particular nature, uh, is always accompanied by something like a disease, he did not yet feel able to decide. And there are a couple of other kind of instances like this where I was thinking of this as, of course, like an expansion, an expansion of his response to Chernyshevsky in Notes from the Underground. Um, and there's really quite a lot of complex issues he's working out in just the first chapter alone. I, it took me way longer on my reread than I remember it being my first time. So I was like, wow, there's quite a lot happening. What's really, really interesting is the moment at the very end of Notes from Underground where Dostoevsky warns us against, uh, he, he gives this warning against um, men who are motivated by a single idea, right? And then we have introduced in Crime and Punishment, which he's writing a year later, right? This is kind of his next big thing. Uh, we're introduced to a hero who is motivated by a single idea. And so it's 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 definitely, um, I would say, a direct offshoot of Notes from Underground. Like, you can't really separate the two mm. characters. Yeah, I would say it's really remarkable because I've read this, I've read Crime and Punishment twice now. Um, this is my third time through, and this is the first time reading it after I've read Notes from Underground, and I, I find it almost remarkable how much more I take away from it now, having read that. Because it, in many, as you mentioned, it does feel like there are many themes in, in Notes from Underground that are built upon, and even some, in some ways, I don't know, made complex. Like Marmeladov, the first time through, interesting guy, mm -hmm. you know, lots going on there. But as I was reading Marmeladov the second time, I'm almost, in, in, in some ways, to break off here momentarily the underground man is 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 critical of some of the things that dostoevsky was critical of but it was also not unquestioned the underground man is kind of put into his place by by lisa uh, at the end of that book it's like it's a worldview which is kind of endorsed but is also not uncritical of itself and i i kind of see that or at least i saw that maybe the perspectives you have are different in marmaladov and we're seeing a character who when he's he's drinking, he declares his drinking is entirely for tears and tribulations, and that he he drinks because he wants to suffer profoundly. He says, and of course, to a certain degree, you have to be um, aware of this man is is like Raskolnikov says, looking for a reason to justify his own actions. Uh, but he is a man who, when it comes down to it, cannot help 
as the underground might, man might put it, pushing on that rot and that, that rotting tooth, um, and just and not acting upon what is perhaps most rational, um, in the same way that that Raskolnikov is trying to be completely rational and and, and entirely failing in many ways, but um, it, it feels like an, a building on that idea of characters who are not good per se and not an uncomplicated version of this, but are. Um, taking those ideas and kind of reflecting them in the various ways that maybe Dostoevsky saw when he was working in his his journalism days and and, and especially crime crime periodicals were really having having their day um, mm-hmm. in terms of the just violent and unrational irrational ways that people act. And even before that, right? Let's not forget that Dostoevsky grew up in his father's hospital. So as a kid, he was interacting with people who were ravaged by alcoholism, people who are, who were suffering from extreme illness, a lot of it illness due to poverty, and a lot of criminals from the time that he was in Siberia. So he really had a good sense of the perspectives of people who were suffering so greatly and who were engaged in a lot of this um, destitute behavior. Mm. Do you all know that Dostoevsky originally had wanted to call the novel The Drunkards? I did not know that. Seems thematic for you. (laughs) (laughs) So he began to work. He began to work on the novel in 1865, Mm. and he originally planned to call it The Drunkards. Um, And it was going to originally kind of center on Marmolotov as a a character that is uh, brought low by the ravages of alcoholism. Mm. But um, in the end, he made drunkenness or alcoholism as just one kind of part of the social critique of the novel and centered it on the Marmalade family and made the the novel broader right um but it's interesting that that is the the genesis of it hmm. that's really fascinating i'm surprised you didn't know that considering the uh how thematic it is for you <laughs> that still would have been a good novel i maintain <laughs> it would have been good it wouldn't have been the same novel at all no yeah no Oh, maybe that's that's oh, we, yes. if we ever change your podcast name, that's a good one to go to. Not not from the themes in the novel, but it's a good title. <laughs> well, you have your pick of of Dostoevsky novels that never made it past the first draft, right? Mm. Or never made it past like the initial idea. So we have the drunkards, we have the life of a great sinner. These are all great podcast titles. <laughs> I feel like I love that a life of a great sinner. What that's an incredible podcast title. Well, that sounds like a band name, I feel like. <laughs> That's the uh, unwritten sequel to Brothers Karamazov. Really interesting. interesting. So this is why this is why we bring Dostoevsky scholars on, because uh, we, we ourselves are, are um, many, many interests, but uh, Dostoevsky is, is unfortunately an area where at least I, I can't speak for Matt, have um, not engaged in as much. So it's it's really helpful to have people who, who know a lot more about this area on. And so, just, again, in the middle of the episode... By that, do you mean that... We Dostoevsky scholars know all the Dostoevsky gossip. <laughs> well, yes, that too. Yeah, yeah, mostly that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Dostoevsky gossip, in many ways, is the important part. Like we said, we're here to not have a figurehead of a Dostoevsky. We're here to engage with the ideas of Dostoevsky, and in many ways, that's you, you could call it philosophy, or you could call it gossip. I think those are really one and the same when it comes to authors. Well, gossip was central to all of Dostoevsky's novels, mm. starting from. What? Starting from poor folk going to Brothers Karamazov. Gossip is a central part of the plot of almost all of them. But also gossip is pretty fun. Yeah, in a way, here we are gossiping almost as if with Dostoevsky himself. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've gone over a lot of the the themes that are either being... In, in many ways, this is like the start of the discussion because there's a lot more. There's obviously six more parts and a lot of these themes we're going to be building on as we go throughout this series. Uh, so 
as as before we leave, because we want to, of course, explore every nook and cranny. Uh, are there any last themes that the the two of you really want to explore or expound upon before we uh, we go? Well, I think one thing that is really really interesting to think about in terms of the way that this novel, the narrative of this novel, um, functions. And I, sh- I should say this, I'm a scholar of narrative theory and genre, so this is the stuff I pay attention to. Um, and that is that we have a number of long monologues from others' voices in the first part of Crime and Punishment. We have Marmalatov's lengthy story in the pub about all the terrible things that has happened to his family. Um, and we have Raskolnikov's mother's letter. And these these kind of get framed by Raskolnikov's um, by Raskolnikov's wandering around the city, but that that idea of other voices coming into Dostoevsky's narrative and enhancing what we know about this third person narrative of Dostoevsky's of not Dostoevsky's but Raskolnikov's thought kind of thought process um, that that adds a lot of depth to the narrative, and we will continue to see. Um, other people's words coming into this text. They play an important role. I always think letters are interesting because with conversation, you kind of get the the seeping of the narrator's feelings into the conversation. Mm-hmm. But letter is specifically it, just uninterrupted somebody else. And I, it, I didn't think of it necessarily from a scholarly perspective, more as something that made me chuckle when Raskolnikov was kind of saying like, oh, I got to sneak out of my house because I don't want the, I don't want anyone to corner me and talk to me, you know, like never-endingly about whatever they have to say and the whole first part of the novel is him essentially getting cornered or spending long periods of time in monologues not saying anything yeah Uh, and i found that endlessly amusing on this read through definitely um (laughs) definitely um dostoevsky dostoevsky's first novel poor folk is an epistolary novel so this is a novel that is entirely letters written from other people so he knew so it's, it doesn't have a narrator. It has two letter writers that exchange letters and kind of the horrible truth of what happens to them and all of the terrible secrets come out through their letter writing. Um, so he's he's aware of the power of a good letter in a, in a novel. Um, but what's interesting here is how angry Dostoevsky's mother, Dostoevsky, I keep doing this, Raskolnikov's mother's letter makes Raskolnikov. Like, he is livid, and he is having a conversation in his head with Luzhin, basically, and with his mother and with Dunya. And uh, he's he, it puts him in a really, I would say, cranky, but that sounds kind of flippant point, point of view, but he's, he's incensed by it. I, uh, I, I don't have any, I don't have, a, like, a major theme I want to bring up, but I, there's a couple uh, things. Obviously, like you said, this, there's a lot to um, tie to specifically you could tie to what is to be done, but just generally the rationalist movement as a whole. Uh, there's this uh, Dostoevsky, I will say, I don't think I've ever read anyone who writes zingers quite like Dostoevsky. And of course, this is through translation, but um, there's so many moments that make me laugh. And I really wanted to hi- highlight this one because you could probably put this in like almost any article anywhere today and it would, it would reply, a percentage, what a splendid word they have. They're so scientific, so consolatory. Once you've said percentages, there's nothing more to worry about. And, and of course, the context for this is when he's uh, standing with the um, the girl on the street, he kind of reflects on, they say every year a certain percentage of, of young women are, are 
you know, uh, uh, what the term he uses is lost uh, for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. And he says, and he kind of pushes back almost that against that idea, because of course, Raskolnikov is very of a split mind on many things and said, you know, once we, when we say a percentage, of course, we say, of, of course, a percentage is lost every year, lost in, in heavy quotations there. Um, but, you know, once you use that, everything, everything is permissible once you've got a percentage to it. And uh, um, even, even in this, uh, Dostoevsky can't help, but, but just like really um, trounce or, or really just make fun of rationalists. <laughs> One other thing that Dostoevsky is doing here is he's engaging with the his contemporaneous science of statistics and probability, mm. which was a growing field at this time. Um, and in our Dostoevsky 200 volume, which is open access, as I mentioned, there's an article by Greta Matzner-Gore about crime and punishment and the science of statistics and probability and how the science of statistics and probability um, engages with, or how Dostoevsky engages with that that scientific discourse as part of the plot of Crime and Punishment. And I think it would be really interesting, especially in consideration of this idea of rationality, right? Rational egoism, or like the idea of a winning formula. Um, so ideology then becomes a way of dictating a psychology, a system in a winning formula. But what does winning mean in that sense? And how does probability play into that? And Dostoevsky is very aware of all of the debates about these things that are going on because he's so widely read um, during this time. Yeah, I mean, even in the whole murder plot is a internal battle between between that, basically, between chance and planning. I mean, allegedly Absolutely. he has it all planned out because that's how he's going to get away with it. But nearly every step of the way, he is almost foiled uh, by something being not as he had anticipated mm. it. Because... How could you if that's what chance is? I mean, exactly. You can't plan. Mm. You can't plan for any of these things, which brings us again back to notes from underground. Especially can't plan a brutal axe murder. No, everything is going to go wrong. A duel, duel, everything will go wrong. Yeah, twice over. <laughs> Absolutely. Twice two is not four in this instance. <laughs> no, twice two can be five. And that's quite a splendid thing. <laughs> Dare I say? <laughs> I, I will say I don't. I don't. I cannot comment whether or not Dostoevsky intended this, but it, there's almost like a meta narrative in the way that you, when you're like the fact that you're reading this and you're aware of the fact that that uh, I, I same thing as you. I keep wanting to say Dostoevsky when I when I mean to say Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov is thinking through his plans to murder Alyona Ivanovna mm-hmm. and is thinking like, oh, all these. The, why do criminals always mess it up? Well, it's because of this, this, and this. I, of course, as this Superman. Uh, who is above this kind of thought, who I will prove the fact that I can do this. And you as a reader, as you're reading his crime, thinking, no, you idiot, don't do this or that. But of course, the point is that he there's all these things that he could not predict, his emotional reaction, things that mm-hmm. he didn't expect. And um, and you yourself are going through the exact same thought process, and, or maybe, at least I was, mm-hmm. of like, here's what you should be doing to do this right. But of course, that's the eternal re- recursion to the fact that everyone's going to read that and from like 10 yards back says, oh, well, this is what you're doing wrong, you idiot. And then you get into it. Not that I'm saying that we will all get into axe murders, but uh, <laughs> you get into a theoretical axe murder and you realize the the, the problem, the, the issues that Dostoevsky is trying to pose to you as like, here's what you're going to run into theoretically. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think also one interesting thing about Dostoevsky, uh, about <laughs> Raskolnikov, Dostoevsky and Raskolnikov are different people. Yes. Dostoevsky is not Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov is not Dostoevsky. I want to go on the record saying that, even though I keep <laughs> mixing them up on this podcast. I'll um, write this down on my record. Officially. Dostoevsky and Raskolnikov are different people. <laughs> I, I testify. Um, Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov is extremely isolated when this starts out. 
So he hasn't had people to talk to in a long time. And even at the point when he thinks of going to Razumikin's house to hang out with his friend and to catch up, he hasn't seen him in four months. Um, so he's he's been kind of living in his head for all of this time. And we know the problem of living in your head for a long period of time. It's called Notes from Underground. It doesn't end well. So, um, yeah, hmm. I, I, I feel like that that idea, even though it doesn't feel like he's that isolated in this part of the novel, um, because he keeps having these interactions with people, he keeps getting into these situations where people are monologuing at him and he can't really respond, essentially, um, even though he's doing all that interaction, he's still coming from a place where he's been in his own thoughts for a really long time. And those monologues are just that monologues. He, he's not entering into dialogue with any of these people. Um, and so he's he's still in a in a sense isolated with his own thoughts. So they they provoke him to have other thoughts or provoke him to react in certain ways. But he's still very single mindedly focused on what he needs to do. And it's hard to break into that. I mean, maybe if he spent more time hanging out with Radumikin, he would have some sense and he wouldn't go around axe murdering people. <laughs> but we don't know because that's not what he's doing. Yeah. And um, I also just want to quickly build on that because this is just something that I, I couldn't help. Uh, it's only tangentially related um as he sits down in the tavern he he is feeling sick and he drinks a beer and he eats some some bread and he thinks how fantastic is it uh that you know uh, just a glass of beer a piece of dry bread and in one moment the brain is stronger the mind is clearer and the will is firm and I, I, again i cannot speculate on dostoevsky's thought as writing this but i could not help but but think given given Dostoevsky's proclivity towards religion and a lot of these writers relationships to religion is what fascinates me about a lot of these works of the what is it the Matthew uh, 4 4 when um, uh, you've got Jesus like when the devil is tempting Jesus who's spending out in, in the middle of the desert you know once you take some bread and Jesus says it is written that man cannot live on bread alone and here is Raskolnikov you know the I wouldn't say inveterate because really that's not the case. The really two-minded rationalist I call him in some ways uh, is saying, in fact, man only needs a little bit of bread and also beer. It's, it's a Russian novel after all. To uh, in fact be strong of mind and end of will. Mm-hmm. Although also Raskolnikov is seriously malnourished at this point, so maybe he just need, did need a little bit of bread. That's true. I may be massively overthinking it. <laughs> But no, your biblical point is well taken. I mean, this is this is something that Dostoevsky clearly knew very well. He incorporates it into Brothers Karamazov, right? Mm -hmm. Very. It's a central part of that novel. I don't know what Jesus thought about beer, though. Well, I mean, we know what he thought about wine, at least. Yeah. Don't know about vodka, though. That's one. That one's up for the. I'll leave that one to the theologians. (laughs) (laughs) If we don't have any more topics to cover for now, of course, this is just the start of of the series overall. I think we have. Yes. I think we have one more thing to say, which is the the last theme is the theme of the idea, mm. right? So it starts out with this coming from notes from underground, this idea, this central theme of a, the danger of a man motivated by a single idea. And we see Raskolnikov concentrating strongly on the idea. And he comes up with this point that an idea is not a crime. And that is one of the things that is explored throughout the novel. I think that's important to keep in mind as a theme moving forward. And now I really, I really am done. Done with themes, but we have more to discuss about crime and punishment. Yes. Because I know that you had worked on a couple other projects that we wanted to briefly touch on that might not be... um, exactly relevant to part one of crime and punishment but are more broadly relevant and that i would like to hear 
more about, especially since we had already touched on the role of media and public opinion and new media uh, for the 1860s. Well, how about <laughs> how about new media for the 21st century? How about some some social media? I know you worked on a project called Dostoevsky at 150. Um, that was crime and punishment at 150. <laughs> I was looking. I can, I can say this because this year I have had multiple publications and another project called Dostoevsky at 200. And <laughs> I think I'm getting a mix. These up. projects yeah. are only five years apart. So <laughs> crime and punishment at 150. Dostoevsky at yes. 200. <laughs> so, so the first one, crime and punishment at 150. Yes. Briefly, what is it? How did you get the idea? How did it come about? Sure. So in 2015, I moved to Canada. Um, I got a job at the University of British Columbia. And I was very grateful because I have another strong Dostoevsky scholar colleague living and working in Canada, who is Kate Holland, who I collaborate with a lot at the University of Toronto. And Kate and I met at a conference my first week of teaching when the MLA happened to be in Vancouver. Um, and we had this conversation and she said, I want to apply for grants. I want to have big projects. I want to do all of these things. It's like, great, let's do it. So um, the first project that we decided to do was to, um, we applied for a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for a project called Crime and Punishment at 150. And our idea was that this is a project that would introduce um, and get public dialogue going around Dostoevsky's novel Crime and Punishment um, in the sesquicentenary year. So uh, that would be 2016. And we conceived of this project as we had a number of what we called digital outreach initiatives, um, which is uh, basically doing things online for whoever wants to find them to find them. Um, and some of these included, there's an online exhibit, um, There's there was a library exhibit at the University of Toronto, which has an online component that you can still find. Um, there was a, a virtual film fest where we watched uh, adaptations of Crime and Punishment together and uh, live tweeted them using a hashtag, which was pretty fun. Um, we watched several Woody Allen films, and we watched, um, oh, it is escaping me. It's a French film based on crime and punishment, drawing a blank. You have to think of it later. You can always send it to us, and I will put it in the show notes right at this timestamp. Sure. It is a beautiful film that exists in the world, which I live tweeted and watched five years ago, and I have completely <laughs> brain fog. But yeah. it's all good. Um and so we, we did these various things. And one of the things that we did was a live tweet of the novel Crime and Punishment. So um, six different Dostoevsky scholars or five different Dostoevsky scholars and I and my research assistant, Christina, um, live tweeted all of Crime and Punishment from Raskolnikov's perspectives over the course of two years. Um, so we did the initial... Um, most of the novel takes place, as you know, over the course of three weeks in... July of 1866 um, and so we or 1865 but it was published in 1866 so in July of 2016 um, we started and uh, we continued on well I don't want to say what happens in the epilogue in case people are reading along but it takes a couple years to get there um, so we finished in 2018 and it it was an intense Twitter experience um, 
each one of us what we called did what we called tweet mining for one part of the novel which is when you think of the way that Raskolnikov would possibly can, assuming that he had twitter and assuming that he was kind of tweeting out his thoughts as various things were happening in the novel um thinking about the way that that would look and i mean it it isn't exactly the novel you don't have other interlocutors coming in um, you don't have, you, we tried to have things happen in as real time as possible. So there are periods where he's just like wandering around in a fog. There are periods where he gets lost. There are periods where he goes dark for a while and then kind of wakes up and is like, aha, I've had brain fever for however many days. Um, various things happen in, in the Twitter feed. But um, what's really interesting about it was the kind of reactions that we got to it. When, when you put Raskolnikov's words and experiences into uh, everyone's Twitter feeds and they follow along, he pops up in the oddest places. Um, so one of, one, oh, I'm going to spoil the end for you all. Big, big, big warning. If you don't know and you don't want to know, yay, this is your warning. Yeah. Spoilers. Turn off the podcast for a bit. Exactly. Look to the, um, I'll put it in the, the description when you should skip to, to, to avoid this part. Yes. Um, so one of the things that was happening during the summer of 2016, if you all recall, was um, the Brexit vote happened and the Brexit vote results came back as Raskolnikov was murdering Alyona Ivanovna. Um, and the other thing that was happening during the summer of 2016 was Trump's speech at the Republican National Convention. And this happened as Raskolnikov was uh, going to confess his crime at the very end of the novel. So we got a lot of very strange <laughs> narrative interaction um, on the Twitter feed uh, because of that. And um, we have, if any of you are very curious about this, the entire project, Crime and Punishment at 150, is preserved um, on our website, blogs.ubc.ca slash cp150. Um, and if you go there, you can find the exhibits, you can find our documentation of the at Rodian Tweets, um, at Rodian Tweets uh, a, a Twitter project. And you can also find a um, way you can read the project without having to go backwards through the feed on Twitter. So we do have a chronological version of it. Um, I should also say that we're grateful to Penguin Books for allowing us to use Oliver Reddy's translation of Crime and Punishment uh, for our mining of the, the novel. Um, but uh, another thing that's good on the um, Another thing that's good on the conference or on the project site is we did have a conference which took place over a few days at UBC in Vancouver. Um, and we do have videos of a lot of the presentations that were there. And these are videos about things like um, an opera adaptation of Crime and Punishment, uh, film adaptations of Crime and Punishment, translations of Crime and Punishment, all kinds of things. Um, and so if you're interested, go check it out. But be aware, spoilers dwell within it pretty much assumes that you finished the novel. Yeah, they tend to do that. <laughs> I, I, I liked reading through some of the tweets. It was a it was a fun and surprising project. And not a place I expected my PhD in Russian literature to take me, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you deal with new media, new technology, I suppose you can't mm. avoid it. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk about Dostoevsky at 200? Sure. Um, so, so last year, uh, 2021, was the bicentenary year of Dostoevsky. Um, so Dostoevsky was born in 1821, last year 2021, so that's 200 years. 
Um, and Kate and I did a large project also sponsored by the Social Sciences and Research, or Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, um, called Dostoevsky at 200. And we worked together with an international team and we put on a number of events. Um, and these include several research roundtables, some talks, a birthday party, which is a pretty fun time. Um, you can see me becoming overly emotional and openly weeping in front of hundreds of people during a toast that I had to give during this event. Um, but other things happened too. It was it was fun. Um, and you can find all of the recordings for that on the Bloggers Karamazov. So the website for that is bloggerskaramazov.com and there's a link to Bicentenary and then there's recordings there. Or you can find them on the North American Dostoevsky Society YouTube channel. Um, and that that was one separate project and the other part of that um, of our bicentenary celebration, but a less public, uh, more scholarly um, part of it, was our uh, volume that came out this summer, Dostoevsky 200, The Novel in Modernity, um, which, as I mentioned, is open access. So please feel free, read, Yeah, we're learn. getting a lot of good links and resources that will all be included for people who want to check them out. Yeah. Good stuff. Including us for future episodes. <laughs> awesome i think it's about everything it was a pleasure talking to you all yeah absolutely thanks for inviting me thank you so much for, for coming on this has been really informative i'm glad yes where can where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media or learn more about you and your work you can find me on twitter um at kab3d all right all right um, and I have a departmental website, um, which has links out to a lot of my work. Or actually, the better thing to do would be, I have a personal website, too, that I haven't updated, but I will give you the link to it, and then I will cool. Excellent. It. And then you can link to that, and it has lots of links to my work. Excellent. Right. Yes, yeah, so all of you listening to this, there will be a link in the description, uh, as many links in the description, actually, today, and there will be a newly updated website among them. Look at that. Shiny, new, a thing that I've had on my to-do <laughs> list for a while. Sometimes you just need a deadline to get it done. Yeah. This will be good. Yes. This will be good for all of us. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Katya. Oh, I should say another thing. Um, oh, I yes, please. Oh, wait, or you said maybe. Uh, I have a book coming out in May, um, which is called uh, Writing Fear, Russian Realism and the Gothic. And it has, it started out with just one chapter on Dostoevsky and now fully a third to two thirds of it is Dostoevsky. He kind of takes over. He does that. Yeah. <laughs> he really does do that. Okay, so keep an eye out for that. That sounds really exciting. Lots, lots of exciting. If you are, if, if for the Dostoevsky heads out there, which I know there are a lot of you, there's tons of links, which I'm going to be investigating out of this episode too. So please click along with us. All right. Thank you so much. Bye, y'all. Okay. So as sad as I am to be leaving this conversation behind, Matt, I got to ask. And I think this is going to be pretty out of left field for everyone, but what are we reading next week? Next week, as it surely will not surprise you, we're going to be continuing this long series on Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. We're going to be covering part two of Crime and Punishment. It's just going to be back to me and Cameron for next part, uh, but it's still going to be fun. If you're planning on reading along with us, be sure to pick up your copy of Crime and Punishment through our affiliate links on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. 
got Drew, Jeff, Janice, Anne, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lucy, Alex, Roland, Elise, Mysterious, Donor Dude, Joanne, Drew, Yitza, and Alex. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March and The International by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.